This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is a Business Radio special presentation after the blockchain bubble, focusing on the evolution of the technology and what it will look like in the future. Here's your host, Kevin Werbeck. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to hour two of our special on blockchain and cryptocurrencies here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. Again, I'm Kevin Werbeck, professor of legal studies and business ethics here at Wharton and the author of the new book, The Blockchain and the New Architecture of Trust. All right, let's head into our next hour. We've got uh, a number of additional fantastic guests uh, joining us. Next one is Tim Swanson, founder and director of research at Post Oak Labs. Uh, Before that, uh, has been a visiting research fellow at Singapore University of Social Sciences and Singapore Management University. And before that, uh, director of market research at R3, author of three books, Great Wall of Numbers, Great Chain of Numbers, and uh, The Anatomy of a Money-Like Informational Commodity, a study of Bitcoin. Uh, Another person who's been uh, in this space uh, for now quite some time and a very uh, perceptive observer. Uh, So, uh, Tim, uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Appreciate it. You've been, uh, for a while, a notable skeptic in the the cryptocurrency blockchain space. And so I I assume uh, right now you're probably spending a lot of time saying, yep, I told you so. (laughs) Uh, Victory Labs, unfortunately, aren't aren't part of my uh, current agenda. Uh, currently packing up. Uh, my wife and I were moving up to a, a different state as we speak, so I haven't had a chance to have some Schundelfreude. But yes, uh, it's been it's been uh, a little fun in, in the sense that uh, the predictions that a few of us made uh, have come true. Uh, although, you know, rubbing it in the salt into everyone's little wounds right now isn't probably going to win me any friends. So yeah. I, I'm yeah. trying not to trying to lay low a little bit on social media. So where do you think things went wrong? Obviously, there you know there was a bubble, there was there was hype, but but you know what led to the the real speculative frenzy of the last year? Well, yeah, I think there's several things. Um, one of them is uh, this this view that um, <laughs> you're, gonna, you're, you're only buying these, these, these coins because you think somebody else is going to buy them. Uh, so you have a, both the, the, was the, the greater fool theory going on. Uh, and also, you know, this is something that Keynes looked into a number of times uh, during his study of bubbles. So the, the phenomenon isn't new. It's just the instrument that was being bought is new, or in, in the sense that it wasn't around 10 years ago. So um, I, I think if you just couple that with um, people, people not knowing what to do with money, wanting quick yield. So we, we could go on from country to country with what happened in Korea and China, not just here in the U.S. But I, uh, just one small anecdote for listeners. Uh, last December, I had a, a classmate from grad school I hadn't spoken to in maybe 11, 12 years who called me up and said, hey, how do I get an account on, on Binance? And they, you know, they were very frustrated that they couldn't get... This is one of the, uh, one of the they, cryptocurrency exchanges. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so I was like, yeah. are, you, are you sure you really are wanting to get into this right now and you don't really understand you know, what private keys are? So anyways, um, I, I think that, that was, it was actually almost to the day. So I'm not saying that that was the indicator, but like the fact that people were not very tech savvy were getting involved in trying to buy this stuff, I think, uh, was kind of an indicator that there may have been <laughs> a bit more irrational exuberance than, than normal. So you're, you're, though, still actively involved in this larger world. You're not one of the, the people there's like Nurio um, Rubini at, at NYU saying the whole thing's a scam. It's all a fraud. What's the part that, that you see as being real and, and not pure hype in this larger blockchain world? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, my main client right now is a company called Clearmatics out in the UK. I've been an advisor for them for uh, a few years. And the things that they've been working on um, are on the central bank digital currency side. So again, I'm not here to promote a specific company or platform or anything like that. But uh, the ideas there are, hey, if, if you're actually in, in a world in which you're trying to share information, a shared ledger, shared assets, uh, shared records, um, having a, uh, a chain, a blockchain, as it were, may be useful for that. And again, I'm not here to promote that, uh, you know, what, what a specific platform is at this time. But uh, I, I do see some utility in, in the sense that if you're able to get a central bank to issue a digital currency on one of these platforms, then you don't have the credit risk you do of these you know, these fake stable coins that are out there. You know, so like several dozen of them that still create re- recreate the same intermediation and, and systemic risks uh, that you previously had uh, with commercial banks. So um, I, I think that there could be some utility, but uh, that's going to be a long time coming if, if uh, central banks approve and try to issue these directly on a platform. Yeah. What would it take for a central bank to have the confidence in issuing a cryptocurrency? Because obviously, you go back to, to Bitcoin and much of the, the vision that excited the, at least the early community that was working on it, and a lot of the people in that world still today, is that it's an alternative to governments and central banks. Yeah, so I see those two worlds kind of just coexisting. Uh, it's not like I could convince the, the crypto anarchists to stop being crypto anarchists, and it's not like you convince <laughs> the, the government to stop being the government. So, um, so, so as long as they both have funding, they'll, they'll coexist. Um, yeah, as far as what actual central banks will do, um, if, if readers are interested or listeners are interested, there's a, there's a paper published in March from the BIS um, on central bank digital currencies, and it has something called a money flower model, and it has eight different types of um, models for how they see um, kind of going forward, or as of right now, um, what represents money on, on a platform or even even you know, physically. Um, so rather than going through each one of those, I just recommend readers just type in you know CBDC paper March you know, 2018 into Google, and that, that paper should be one of the top entries. So it's the um, Bank, bank it's of International hard. Settlements, right, is BIS, yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah, the Bankers Bank, um, or Central Bankers uh, Bank. Um, but as far as like requirements and, and stuff, there's there's another there's another bit of reading that, and homework that listeners can do. It's, it's something called a, looking up something called the PFMIs, uh, Principles for Financial Market Infrastructures. And it was a, a 2012 is when this publication came out, and in it it outlines uh, you know a dozen plus uh, ideas and principles for um, how you should run and, and regulate and oversee um, infrastructure. And that's not something you know when, when Satoshi was putting together. Uh, Bitcoin back in 2007, 8, 9, uh, in, in those years, it, it's not like he sat down or she sat down or they uh, and, and tried to do checkoffs of, of what were then the precursors to PFMIs. So he, he wasn't, or uh, Satoshi wasn't trying to solve problems for regulated institutions. So I, I don't, I don't think that. That's, I'm not saying that your question's bad. It's just that the, when, when central banks sit around thinking how, how do CBDCs work, they don't, they don't say, hey, Satoshi's. So oh, sure. They solve this for us. Yeah. Sure. So uh, they have a set of different requirements. Um, and in fact, irreversibility and finality are, are, are some of those. Um, so there is a little intersection in the ideas. But the way you have, for example, uh, on Bitcoin or Ethereum with, with proof of work networks is you have uh, probabilistic finality. Um, there, you can never have 100% guarantee that a transaction won't be rolled back or reorganized. Whereas uh, platforms that um, central banks and, and, and their you know, effectively correspondent. Um, members um, need is they have to have things like definitive legal settlement finality. So I know that sounds really boring. You'd have some lawyers, I'm sure, on the show that could kind of go into those issues. 
But uh, those are those are non-negotiable requirements. If you're going to run a uh, payment system tied into the central bank, yeah. you have to have these guarantees. This is one. <laughs> we could have a whole show about the others. Right. I guess the other side of the question, though, is what attracts central banks to issuing a, a digital currency or, or a cryptocurrency? Um, they all have the different motivations. So I certainly don't want to give anyone a broad, you know, sweeping brush. Um, some of some of the conversations involve, um, you know, th- this world in which they've bought into at least the vision that you'll have assets that are digitized um, that are uh, needed uh, instead of instead of tying in or plugging into the existing um, external financial system through Fedwire or whatever it might be. What if you had uh, a way of settling um, payments on chain uh, with these assets? Uh, these whatever instruments that are being issued. Um, and the only way to really do that is to have cash on the ledger itself. And so you need to have a central bank actually issue that, or at least the equivalent of central bank uh, digital currency on there. So some of it is just from a practical standpoint, like, hey, we already have these digital assets out there that have been issued by uh, recognized regulated institutions. Let's find a way of uh, allowing for payments to take place. So that, that's part of the practical side. Um, there's other indi- um, other arguments for policy, for example, for, for having um, – below zero interest rates and obviously um <laughs> the cryptocurrency community would probably be up in arms about having uh below zero uh below the zero bound um we're not going to obviously have time to go into the whole conversation here but if there was a way in which the the whole money supply uh, or at least a significant portion was uh digitized and actually maintained not through the commercial banking you know credit issuance process but through uh central banks um then you could effectively go below zero bound uh, not not just like a quarter percent, but one or two or three percent. So it's a policy thing that comes up too. And again, I'm not advocating one way or the other. I'm just saying that that's part of the conversation. You're listening to our special After the Blockchain Bubble with your host, Kevin Werbeck, currently speaking with Tim Swanson of Post Oak Labs. So, Tim, you were uh, one of the first people, or maybe, maybe the coiner of this uh, distinction three or so years ago, between permissioned and permissionless blockchains, the the permissionless being the the open networks like Bitcoin and Ethereum, and the permission ones being ones like we're talking about now for governments and, and enterprises. Today, do you think that that's still the right uh, cut to make? That's that's still the most useful distinction between the phenomena that are happening. Uh, yes and no. Um, so. Uh, this, the, for the listeners, uh, the, the actual history of that term was originally coined by a guy named Robert Sams, who founded Clearmatics, which I'm an advisor for, and I, okay. and I ended up writing a paper talking about other companies doing the same thing. Uh, and unfortunately, it got popularized to the point where <laughs> it, that, that wasn't my goal to, to, to popularize that term. I was trying to create a distinction around uh, validators, who, who, who validates transactions. In, in the Bitcoin world, it's really just you know, 15, 20 different pools in any given day. Uh, in a quote-unquote permission network, it, there's so many different platforms that have been pitched that it, you can't really say how many you know validators would be on it. But the idea here is, is you knew who the validators were, um, rather than uh, anon- anonymous non-KYC uh, participants. Um, so as far as going forward today, is that is that useful? Um, I, I actually think that there's slightly different terminology that we could start looking into, and that's uh, actually just reusing or relooking at the words intermediation in the first place. If, if you if you don't if you add or re-add intermediaries or you just reshuffle who the intermediaries are, you're really not changing market structure um, and you're not reducing risk. So rather than <laughs> going into the whole history of like CCPs, you know, the central uh, you know clearinghouses and counterparties, um, it, it would be important for for listeners just to 
to, to look at the, the, the organizations and, and the, the ecosystems that they've been maybe um, wanting to develop in or invest in. Um, how, how are those, how is that market structured? In, in with the cryptocurrency world, I, I would argue we, they've actually reinvented nearly every intermediary without any of the accountability that you would have from congressional oversight or anything like that. So that's obviously, I just <laughs> opened up a big can of worms that we don't have time to go into. But um, I, I think that if, if we just look at intermediation and how that takes place today versus how it used to take place, um, what has changed? If nothing's changed, then are you, can you really say that you know, a revolution is taking place? Maybe not. Um, so obviously <laughs> you're going to have other other speakers that uh, may have different opinions on that. So I'll just I'll put a pause on that. That's quite all right. So we've got to wrap up in, in less than a minute uh, to move on. But so the last question I have for you is, uh, 10 years from now, let's say, are we still going to be using words like like blockchain and cryptocurrencies to describe what's happening, or, or will these technologies essentially fold into business and technology? Uh, I, I hope it's the latter, not the former. And, and this one, one anecdote on that, if, if, you, if you walk through uh, San Francisco Airport, uh, there's a, a whole aisle of uh, old magazines from the 1930s called Radio, like that's the title of it. And I'm reminded, of, whenever I see those, I'm reminded of internet conferences in the early 1990s, where it was like, hey, we're going to go to the internet conference. So <laughs> I, I really hope, I hope this becomes a, an anachronistic term pretty quickly. All right, uh, we have to wrap up, but uh, Tim Swanson, thanks very much for joining me on the program. Thanks, Kevin. Take care. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 